Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 22. Uh, we've been in a series in the book of Acts. We are coming actually to the end of this book. We have a few more weeks uh, or so before we are completely done with this. If you guys don't have a Bible, we have some ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. So if you need one, please feel free to raise your hand and uh, ushers will get you guys a Bible. So chapter 22 is where we left off a little bit last week. Um, the uh, message that I want to basically entitle today is... Uh, the fact that we see that life is present in suffering. So that's the title, Life is Present in Suffering. And I basically get that title from the fact that, so you look at the life of Paul, um, the book of Acts that we are at right now, the portion of the passage that we are looking at, is really unique. In fact, I would even go so far as to say there's no other New Testament counterpart to what we are looking at right now. It's, uh, it's highly uh, full of narrative, meaning it's just a story that is unfolding this drama of what God is up to through a unique, specific character, a guy by the name of Paul the Apostle. If you've ever read the New Testament at all, you know that the majority of the New Testament was actually written by this guy, Paul. And so it's a really unique storyline, kind of taking us on a journey as to how God used this guy by the name of Paul the Apostle. Um, but what's unique about it is it shows us these incredible trials and hardships and struggles that Paul faced. In other words, life was not easy for him. And yet, at the end of the day, what we see with Paul is that he has this really unique ability to overcome some of the most uh, horrible circumstances in life. And uh, the reason why, obviously, that we can find so much, I think, hope through a storyline like this is because, in reality, all of us, to some degree, we are confronted or we face some degree or another of suffering or hardships or trials. And the question that we're always wrestling with is what's the purpose in the midst of these things? Or why am I having to go through these circumstances? Or how do I overcome these particular things? Or sometimes we just want the quick, easy way out is how do I get out of this fast? And yet, oftentimes what we see is that sometimes um, God actually uses these circumstances to actually be the very means by which to shape us. Uh, it's unique because Christianity does not move into this world um, independent of or re with the removal of suffering, but it's actually through suffering that Christianity makes this radical impact in the book of Acts and in the first century and even on into the century in which we live in right now. So with that, I want to begin to jump into the story, um, kind of like what we did last week. There's a large portion of scripture that we're going to be reading through and covering um, these next few chapters uh, until we're finally done with the book of Acts. Like I said, it's just kind of long narrative. And uh, we could take small bite-sized pieces, but I think by doing that, we kind of miss the major, larger narrative of what's happening here. So to some degree, you, you have to bear with the story, listen to the story, um, and if that's hard for you, um, ask God to help expand your soul, to, to receive it, to begin to be stretched with regard to it. And like I said last week, I'm going to read through majority of this. So think of this as like uh, story time uh, with, with Pastor B, uh, reading stories to you guys. So just listen to the story, think about it. I'll, I'll break it down for you as, as hopefully easy as I can so that you can kind of think about it in terms of the context of what's happening. So um, we'll look at basically four main uh, movements that are happening here in the passage. I'll just kind of outline them real quick, and then we'll pray, and then we'll begin to read through them, and then what I'll do is I'll finish with just uh, a handful of observations, I think, that the text uh, brings to our awareness that we can think about, we can walk away from, and asking this bigger question of, of how can we, how can you and I find real life even in the midst of our own present momentary suffering? So um, here's the main movements that we'll be taking a look at, four of them. Um, first of all, we see that there is this movement of Paul's claim of Roman citizenship. Uh, it'll make sense. I think we've got a slide I'll show you. Paul's claim to Roman citizenship. Uh, that's uh, chapter 22, verses 25 to 29. Um, and then we'll take a look at Paul's address before this Jewish council. Again, all this will make sense when we begin to read it. Just trying to break it down for you. Um, and then the plot against Paul's life is the third main movement. And the fourth main movement is Paul's transport to uh, Caesarea. So Paul kind of literally has his posse uh, whereby he is being escorted to this main city and he's literally surrounded by hundreds of uh, Roman guards. So imagine this entourage of militaristic might and flaunt and power all surrounding just this one lowly Jewish guy. Um, so this, this is the story. This is kind of the makeup of what we'll look at. So let me pray 
and then we'll jump into the story. We'll finish this. I'll make some comments as we go through this, and when I'm done, like I said, I'll make uh, three observations or so, and we'll wrap this up. So let me pray. We'll get into the story. Father, right now we ask you that you would just open our hearts, our minds, help us this to be totally present. God, in this moment, in this place, it's easy for us to be physically here, you know, mentally, emotionally, uh, we're elsewhere. So we pray right now that you'd help bring our minds, our emotions, our thoughts uh, to be present here in this moment. So we ask you, God, that you would help our hearts and our minds to be sharp, to not just hear information, but to truly hear it. Uh, to truly think about it, to consider it. God, to be swept up in this story that you are writing, that you're doing, that you're working, not just 2,000 years ago, but presently, right now in this moment. God, that you help us to be able to be aware of ways in which your presence is with us, even right now, in the midst of circumstances that may be beyond our control. So we commit this time in your hands, and we pray and ask that you would help me to be able to communicate, speak forth with clarity, God, the things that are on your heart. And anything else, God, that I say, that I suggest, that I hint at, has absolutely nothing to do with you. That's just simply my own words. God, I pray that those would fall by the wayside and that what would be heard would be you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all said, amen. All right. Acts chapter 22. Let's jump into the story. We'll pick it up at around verse uh, 17. Actually, 23. That's where I'm going to start. Ready? You guys doing okay? You guys excited? Story time with Pastor B. Here we go. 23. says, and as they were shouting and throwing their cloaks and fleeing dust into the air. Why? Because Paul literally was just before these guys. And he is uh, sharing with this Jewish community of people that he had been called by God to preach forth Jesus, not just to Jewish people. Uh, In other words, this was not just a nationalistic movement. Do you realize that? God has no nationalistic favorites. God doesn't look at white folk and be like, they are my people. Nor does God look at black folk and say, they are my special, unique people. Nor Asian, nor any other color, nor any other nationality or race or ethnicity. God sees all because he's created all. So Paul is basically like, God's called me to a unique people group that are not Jewish. And the Jewish ethnocentric folk that whom Paul was talking to were infuriated by this. And they wanted to kill Paul. And uh, mob rule took place. And what ends up happening, Paul gets arrested. Now Paul is before this, uh, this uh, Roman centurion. And they're having this dialogue. And the story gets kind of... Uh, Compounded, verse 24 says, Then the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Uh, But when they had stretched him out for the whips, uh, Paul said, so before I even read any further, I want you to imagine this in your mind. So here's Paul, uh, this Jewish guy, uh, preaching Jesus. He's speaking, obviously, in a different language than the Roman centurion knows, so he has no idea really what... Paul had just uh, unpacked or communicated to them. All he knows is that there's, there's literally this uh, community is on the verge of riot. So if you are a Roman soldier, right, you're employed by Caesar, you're, you, you've got a number of uh, things that you're responsible for. But one of the main things that your job description says you've got to ensure is Pax Romana, meaning Roman peace. In other words, if there's riots on your watch, you're dead. Like this, that's it. Like that's how you're, you're not fired you're not exiled to an, an island in the Mediterranean. You, 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 you die. You, you lose your life because you're not doing what Caesar is, is wanting to do. So this guy's freaking out right now because he realizes uh, riot is on the verge of breaking out. So he basically arrests Paul. He has Paul stretched. Imagine, Paul is literally being spread eagle. Uh, his hands are bound, and he's about to flog him, meaning some whip is about to begin to... Uh, be laid into Paul's body, and then all of a sudden, while Paul is spread eagle, stretched out, about ready to have this whip begin to uh, lay against his flesh, Paul then interacts with him. And then he says, uh, uh, but when they had stretched him out with the whips, and then Paul then said to the centurion who was standing by, uh, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? So just imagine that. 
Um, this is, this is uh, you know, a lot of scholars, like a Paul, and there's just like the tenacity of Paul. Like, why did not Paul say anything about his, you know, Roman citizenship earlier? And then secondly, what, what's the big deal about Roman citizenship? So if you lived back in Rome, um, Roman times, uh, for the most part, the majority of people living within Roman province or a region of land that was annexed into Roman um, control, most people, they were non-Roman citizens. Um, they lived underneath the Pax Romana. They lived within the domain of Caesar, but they weren't citizens, um, which meant that a lot of people that were part of the ancient Roman Empire were actually slaves. They owed Rome a debt. They had their land confiscated or something like that, or they owed Caesar, Caesar something. So they worked to pay that off. That would be sort of like an indebted type of a servant, a.k.a. Uh, uh, slavery. So for the most part, what we see here with Paul, Paul's just like, Look, I, I'm not a slave. I'm actually a Roman citizen. So with Roman citizenship, there was all sorts of laws and restrictions that protected you. And um, this is a little bit of news that kind of comes in the drama, the narrative about Paul's life. And he's like, hey, is it lawful, by the way, before you, uh, you know, start whipping me? Is it lawful, just curious, uh, for you to whip me? I'm a Roman citizen. And they, all of a sudden, this guy freaks because he realizes, wait a minute. Are, really? Are you really a Roman citizen? So this dialogue ensues, verse 26, and when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune, and then he said to him, what are, what are we about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune then came and he said to him, so he goes to his superior, supervisor, he comes back, and then he says, tell me, are you really a Roman citizen? And then he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought my citizenship for a very large sum. And Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth, which is like, a whole nother level above just buying your citizenship. Paul's like, like I, I was born a Roman citizen, which tells us a lot about the character and who Paul was and his training, his upbringing, his background, and so on, his pedigree. Uh, it goes on to verse 29. It says, uh, so those who are about to examine him, examine him, they withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid. You would imagine. Like, why, why afraid? Uh, because... Had they whipped Paul without actually uh, condemning him or judging him or having any type of, um, yeah, I mean, this is literally torture. They were about to torture Paul to get, this is an interrogation, a torture slash interrogation to get Paul to speak. Paul's like, I'm a Roman citizen. They're like, uh-oh, we're, we're, we're dead. We almost lost not only our job, not only exiled, but lost our lives because we almost condemned uh, an untried Roman citizen. Verse 29 he says, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, and he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, and he said uh, that he had bound. So I want to uh, move on to the very next section as we kind of carry on in the story here. So first of all, we just see that Paul uh, recognizes as a citizen. There's kind of some interesting things to note about this. I mean, for one, and I can spend a whole lot of time thinking about this, but Paul recognizes that living within the... Uh, the context in which he lived in, that Roman citizenship offered some level of, of ability. And Paul wasn't afraid to use that for the purpose of, you know, not only saving his life, but also for the purpose of the gospel, um, which gives us a little bit of a clue that elsewhere Paul actually describes himself that we are not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven. So, you know, you can ask a critical question of the text. So what is it, Paul? Are you a citizen of Rome or are you a citizen of heaven? I think Paul's answer would be yes, both. So as a follower of Jesus, we would call this dual citizenship. So the question is, are you a citizen of America or some other country or a citizen of heaven? The answer is, if you're a follower of Jesus, yes, you're a citizen of both. You have responsibilities to both. There are things, obviously, as a follower of Jesus that we're responsible to, to follow Jesus. But our highest and most accountability is, is not necessarily to the state of, uh, or the country of America, but to God, to God's kingdom. We are citizens of King Jesus, God's kingdom. But that means that because we live in a unique governmental system, that we can take advantage of that. We can use that for the good of our own protections and also for the good of uh, promoting the gospel. And this is what we see Paul doing within his context. Now, I want to move on to the very next section because there's a lot to cover and I, want to, I don't want to get too hung up on all of this. So secondly, we begin to see that Paul's addressed before the Jewish council. So in this unfolding drama, we see it around verse... Uh, uh, the last portion of uh, 22 in verse 30 says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he had been accused by the Jews, he unbound him, and he commanded the chief priests of the council to meet 
And he brought Paul down and he set him before them. And then Paul, looking intently at the council, Paul said to them, Brothers, I have lived my life before God and be, uh, with all good conscience up until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall or whitewashed sepulcher or whitewashed grave. He says, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. And those who stood by said, you, would you actually revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now what's going on here? So um, there's, there's one of the disadvantages that we have when we, when we read the Bible. So one of those disadvantages is we do not get the tone or the tenor of a person's speech. Does that make sense? So we don't know whether or not the way that, thanks, that was awesome, thank you. Um, we don't actually know the way that Paul is speaking is, is filled with um, sarcasm. And if Paul is speaking sarcastically, which I actually think that's probably what's happening here, that Paul is not like, I have no idea who the high priest is. I think Paul knew who the high priest was because very likely this is kind of like the council, the religious leaders, uh, the Pharisees, uh, the highest religious kind of team, if you would, of uh, Judaism. These probably would have been former colleagues of Paul. Paul probably would have hung out with these guys, studied the Torah with these guys, memorized scripture with these guys. So these are people that Paul perhaps was uh, deeply familiar with. And so in this dialogue that's going on here, when Paul's responding, and then Paul gets uh, right, punched in the face, uh, Paul then is in this dialogue with these guys. So some would suggest that maybe Paul had no idea to whom he was talking. Maybe Paul really did not know that this was the high priest. Um, others would suggest, again, we don't know this for sure, but because we don't have the tone and tenor of a person speaking, um, would suggest that actually Paul was speaking sarcastically. Oh, I had no idea. I had no idea you were the high priest. Like, high priests don't order someone to be struck in the face, right? Good high priests don't command, uh, you know, mafia-style attacks. Like, that's kind of what I think maybe Paul is doing and what's going on here within the story. And this is kind of high drama right here. And Paul's dialoguing with these guys. Um, one interesting thing to note, um, one commentator pointed out, I thought it was kind of fascinating, is that there are passages in the New Testament that actually describe Jesus as he says, look, if one man strikes you in the face, turn and give me your other. <laughs> Here's Paul doing the exact opposite, right? I mean, Paul's not fighting back, but Paul is getting saucy. He's getting snarky. He's like, why would you do this, you know? And the fact is, one commentator pointed out, I thought that's kind of, that's kind of an interesting little insight. Um, why doesn't Paul do what Jesus said, turn the other cheek? And he goes on to make the assumption. He says, it's, I, I love how the passage is kind of pointing out the, the realness, the rawness. Paul's not a perfect guy. He's a human being. In the moment, in the circumstance, someone punches you in the face, the, the likely impulse is not going to be like, oh, hey, here's, here's my other cheek. Um, and, and the real idea behind that is not just so much to let, let someone stomp all over you. It's really to kind of expose that action for what it is. It's just futile. It's ridiculous. It's silly. And, and, and Paul fires back. I mean, Paul has this tenacity in which he fires back. And uh, like I said, this one commentator just kind of points out that this is the rawness, the realness of the Apostle Paul. He's not a man that's perfect. He really is a man that's in process, that's growing, that's learning, figuring out the way of Jesus, though he's not perfect in the midst of that. Um, I find a lot of hope in that uh, interpretation because I see a lot of my own self in those inabilities to act according to an impulse of, of gospel orientation, if you know what I mean. Uh, in other words, to put it in simple language, I want in my heart to respond in appropriate ways that reflect the beauty, love, patience, kindness, gentleness of Jesus. But I, I'm not there yet but by any stretch. I'm very far from there. And I can like, give you stories right now, confessions of a pastor, of things that I've done even within the past like, week that are not good, that are not glorifying to God. There is a small group of guys actually I kind of share this stuff with, and I think I might even shock them sometimes. They're like, oh, really? You, you did that? But the point of the matter is, is this. Look, we're all in process. We're all growing. We're all learning. 
what it looks like to really truly follow Jesus. And I think Paul is, is no exception to that reality as well. So um, Paul makes these comments, these statements. As we enter back in the story at about verse uh, 6, it says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council. So what's going on here? Uh, he goes on, Luke, the narrative tells us. He says, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of the Pharisees. And it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a discussion had arisen between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And the Sadducees, they say that there's no resurrection, no angel, no spirit. And the Pharisees acknowledge all of those. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and the Pharisees and the party stood up, and they contended sharply, uh, we find nothing wrong with this man. Uh, what if a spirit or an angel did actually speak to him? And when the dissension became so violent, the tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces. Again, just imagine this. Like Paul, this little Jewish guy, right? Smack in the middle of this, again, mob rule once again. And they're like, oh my gosh, Paul is at it again. He's going to die again. We've got to intervene one more time. They're about to tear him limb from limb. So what's going on here? So in this particular passage, uh, Luke, the narrator, tells us about two factions within uh, Judaism. One was called the Pharisees, one was called the Sadducees. Uh, the Pharisees, for the most part, they would have been what, what you might want to call as kind of like the, the right-wing fundamentalists. They adhere to Scripture. They look to the law of Moses. They believed in miracles. They believed in the miraculous. They believed that God was an interventionary type of a God, that he comes in, he moves, he works, he speaks, he uses prophets, he uses dreams. Miracles happen in, in on behalf of this God. For the Sadducees, these guys were kind of more of um, in line with kind of the political aspirations. These were people that kind of had uh, uh, friends in, in high places in politics. These were kind of the pragmatics of the set. You might want to call these kind of more of a, of a liberal sect um, in a sense where they had questions. They didn't necessarily believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in the possibilities of life after death or miracles or an interventionary type of a god. So Paul recognizes I'm right in the middle of two factions of uh, Judaism, and so what is one to do? So uh, we, we might describe Paul's tactic here as uh, divide and conquer, right? So Paul's just like, all right, I know what I can do. I'm going to create a theological controversy. So Paul's like, hey, look, guys, the fact is the reason why I'm being condemned right now, the reason why you guys are all against me is because I believe in the hope of the resurrection, and so you got the Pharisees that believe in resurrection. They're like, I don't see what's wrong with what Paul has to say. And then you got the Sadducees that don't believe in resurrection. They're like, we should kill him. And the Pharisees are like, no, that's fine. Like, we believe in resurrection. We believe in these things. And the Sadducees are like, we think they're ridiculous and they're crazy. Now Paul literally is kind of like, I just imagine Paul like slipping back, like watching them fight and disagree and argue, go crazy. And, uh, and all of a sudden this whole thing gets really heated again and the Roman guard steps back in and he's like what's going on again so um, this is Paul's way to I think kind of just sort of remove himself from this controversy and he realizes at this particular point Paul has no hope uh, in terms of getting off the hook or out of uh, trouble with this community of people so then it goes on to say about verse 9, it says, Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and the Pharisees and the parties that stood up, and they contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel did speak to him? Verse 10, it says, When the dissension became violent, the tribune asked, or who was afraid that Paul would be torn uh, to pieces uh, by them, he commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from among them, and by force, and bring him into the barracks. And then the following night, verse 11, the following night, so again, imagine, this is, this is in the evening, after Paul, again, almost lost his life. Again, Paul is rescued by the Romans. So uh, I've mentioned this before, that, that Luke, the way he writes about the Romans, or the non-Jewish uh, militaristic superpower, the Romans, Romans in his storyline, he actually writes about them as sort of being friendly to Christianity, and it was, it was the Romans that actually rescued Paul's life. Um, so here we see in the story. So that night, Paul's probably sitting there in another prison cell, considering the events of the day, probably afraid, totally worried about the future. 
Uh, what will happen? What will tomorrow look like? Will I die? What will circumstances look like? How far will this riot go? How fair of a trial will I actually get? Will I ever get out of prison? Will I ever get back to being a missionary, planting churches, sharing Jesus, doing what I had always wanted to, to do? Paul receives this word from God. Verse 11 says, The following night, the Lord stood by him. Think about that phrase. The Lord stood by him. So here's Paul. Darkness, literally darkness. Figuratively darkness. Metaphorically darkness. And where's God? Standing by him. Standing by him. Right in the middle of the darkness. And then he goes on to say, then he said to him, take courage. Don't be afraid, in other words. Don't be discouraged. Transform that discouragement into courage. Take courage, Jesus says to him. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome also. So this is God's promise to Paul. Paul, what's in your heart? Paul's heart, Paul's desire was at some point to make it to Rome. Why did Paul want to go to Rome? Again, a lot of scholars debate over this. We don't know exactly for certain. Um, I think probably the most likely answer as to why Paul wanted to go to Rome is because Rome was like um, the center of the, 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 the empire. Like Paul thought, if I can go to Rome, it'd be equivalent to like going to Mecca uh, for someone that's trying to evangelize Muslims. Say, if I can get to Mecca, if I can get to the very center of this empire to get to the White House or to get into the White House or to get chummy with the president or to get into a place where I can actually be in the midst of the UN to rub shoulders with some of these world leaders, world, world empires, that somehow, some way, the gospel may have this unique, profound impact upon the world. I think this is always Paul's mentality. Um, not that Paul did not care about the outlying surrounding areas and cities. Um, we got a speaker going on here, right? I'm going to turn this down. Hold on. Something just happened here. Is, that, is it okay if I turn this off? I don't know how to turn it off. <laughs> it's not on Clapper. Um, I'm going to unplug it. Is that bad? There we go. Power off. There we go. There we go. Um, little intermission. We're back. You guys ready? You guys doing okay? That was my attempt to make sure that you do not fall asleep during story time with Pastor B. So um, back in the story, what, what we see is, is uh, Paul is literally having this interaction with these people um, as, as far as where his life's going to go. And so with this, Paul recognizes he needs a word from God. He's discouraged. God comes to him in the midst of this and says, I'm going to be with you. You will make it to Rome. And I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to abandon you. Your desires to get to this place will ultimately, inevitably end up happening because I'm in this. So don't, don't be afraid, Paul. And that leads us into the third section of the story, the third movement, uh, where we begin to see this plot against Paul's life. This picks up around verse 11. Um, uh, we just read verse 11 where it describes Paul in the middle of the night having this encounter with God. I'm going to jump down to verse 12. It says, And when it was day, the Jews made a plot, and they bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. So these guys had some sort of a covenant to uh, starve themselves, to have a food strike until they connected to the point where they can actually kill Paul. So within this plot, we're told in verse uh, 13, it says, there were more than 40 of them, uh, this conspiracy, within this conspiracy. So 40 people, 40 guys, 40 assassins had vowed to take Paul out. And in verse 14, it says, and when uh, they went into the uh, chief priests and the elders, they said to them, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with his counsel, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you're going to determine this case more exactly. And we then will be ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. 
so we're introduced to another character here. We had, we had no idea up in this point that Paul actually had a sister. We, we know a little bit more about Paul the Apostle. We also know that Paul is, a, is an uncle, right? Uh, so his, his little uh, nephew finds out about this. We have no idea how this happens. Um, we would probably just describe this as providence. Somehow God was intervening and moving within these circumstances and allowing for Paul's nephew to learn about this uh, plot to kill him. And then it says, it goes on to say in verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush and he went in, he entered in the barracks and he told Paul. And then Paul called one of the centurions and he said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and he brought him to the tribune and he said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and he asked me to bring this young man to you as he, was, as he has something to say to you. And then the tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And then he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they're going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him and have bound have been and are bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor to drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting in your, for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, and he uh, charging, was charging them, tell no one uh, what you have informed me of these things. So that ends the third section. I want to move into the final uh, movement, and then I'll finish with some uh, simple conclusions. Uh, verse 23, it says this. So he called two of the centurions, and he said to them, Ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So imagine this. Here's Paul, right? He's, he's a follower of Jesus. He's a church planner. He literally is no threat whatsoever to Rome at all. He's, he's not bringing about conspiracy. He's literally being uh, ushered, uh, walked along by, side by all of these uh, militaristic power, powerful men, um, soldiers, spearmen. So imagine this entourage uh, as if they were like walking Hannibal Lecter through from, from one city to the next, right? Paul the Apostle is literally being escorted in the most, I don't know, just spectacular way from one city to the next. And this is all part of like God's plan. And, and again, when you read passages like this, you got to ask the question like, why is Luke so descriptive in this? What's the whole point? Why is Luke unpacking and telling us this story of Paul's life? This is why I say there's nothing else like this in the New Testament at all. Uh, what you have for the most part is storyline that impacts the life of Jesus. And then you have what you would call epistles and teachings and didactic that impacts how you should live out the gospel. And then you have this, which is really unique. It just tells this very fascinating uh, detail-laden story of the life of this guy, Paul, and how God was in the midst of all of this. So uh, for that fact alone, I, I think there's just some incredible value to think about this. And then it goes on to say, in about verse uh, 24, also provide uh, mounts for Paul to ride and to bring him safely to Felix the governor. And uh, he wrote a letter to this effect. So this guy, Claudius Lysias, was the, the main a leader in charge of all of this. Um, he's one of the few Romans that's actually uh, given a name in the book of Acts. And again, as I mentioned last week, he's actually uh, recognized as a friendly face to the Apostle Paul, to the, uh, the Christian uh, movement. And he goes on to say, Claudius Lysias, to the excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man, and this is just a great summary. So if, any, if you missed everything else, you're checking your Facebook stat. If you're falling asleep, just listen to this. You'll get everything in this nice little synopsis. And I'll wrap this up with some closing thoughts. So just listen. Verse 27. This man was seized by the Jews, and he was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with the soldiers, and I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the charge for which he was accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of the law, uh, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. He says, and when it was disclosed to me that there had been a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you uh, what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him 
by night to Antipatris. And the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor and presented Paul also before him, on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said to him, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So there you go. Paul is now in, obviously, high security waiting for another one of these uh, trials or moments to kind of give his story or his account of what's happening. And uh, chapter 24 begins one more other of those types of uh, unpacking of a story. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to finish up with just uh, three different things to consider to think about. Because again, like I mentioned, Luke's telling us this whole story, this grand narrative of this one guy by the name of the Apostle Paul, who's bringing Jesus all around the world, who's planting these churches, these Jesus communities, uh, these communities of multi-ethnic groups of people coming together under the kingship, under the lordship of King Jesus. And now, unfortunately, through a set of like out-of-control circumstances, Paul is in prison. He's not planting churches. He's not free to go wherever he wants. He's literally at the mercy of the Roman government. So, in other words, if you were to look at Paul's life, from just an objective outsider, you look like, that stinks. He has such a unique ministry. Now Paul's life is so messed up. He's in prison. He has no control over his life. He can't decide to go one place or the next. He literally is the victim. But Luke is telling us another story that Paul really isn't the victim. Paul is actually totally, completely led and guided and directed by God himself. That through these circumstances, through the suffering, through these trials, through these things that are outside of Paul's control, God is actually in control, narrating, weaving, scripting the story of Paul's life. That later Paul would basically say something to this effect. That I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. That's Paul's way of basically saying, look, I'm in prison, I get it. But I'm in prison because God has allowed for this to happen. God's in control of this thing. Called my life. So I want to finish with just three things that I think that we see that are kind of at display or on display within the story here that we see that Jesus ultimately brings. I'll wrap it up with this. I'll just go through these things really quickly. That in suffering, in suffering, what we, I think, learn from the story of Paul's life, that Jesus ultimately brings three things. Number one, we see that Jesus actually brings a pure conscience. Paul makes reference to this in his initial dialogue with these religious leaders. Uh, I'll just read. Repeat it again. He says this, and then looking intently at the council, he said, Brothers, I have lived before God and you in all good conscience up to this day. So Paul's just like, Look, my conscience is clear. It's not heavy, it's not burdened, I'm not struck down, I'm actually free. That's what Paul's saying. My conscience, my heart, my life, because I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do. So Really what Paul would actually go on to say elsewhere, I'll read this to you real quickly out of the book of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and he appointed me to serve. Even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ, in my insolence or in my conscience, I persecuted his people, God's people, but God had mercy on me. Oh, how generous and gracious the Lord was. This is a trustworthy saying that Paul goes on to say, Everyone should accept it, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and of which I am the worst, but God had mercy on me. So what Paul is basically saying, that look, I may be standing before you, and you may be accusing me, but you're not the ultimate judge. There's a judge above your judgment. There's an opinion that outweighs your opinion. Do you understand this? And let me just suggest this. For some of you, you're still living bound to the judgment and the opinions of lesser courts. We do this every single time we put some other ideology or idea or false God or false opinion over God. So when we say stuff like this, I really, really, really want to be accepted within the circle of friends. Or I really, really, really want to be loved by this particular person. Or I really want to be accepted within the tribe of this community, this company or whatever. And to the degree that you give yourself entirely over to that, you are basically saying their opinion of me matters above and beyond any other opinion. And what Paul is saying, 
my conscience is clear because I'm standing before you all and I'm innocent because I've stood before the living God who's declared me forgiven and washed and cleansed, guiltless. This is exactly what Paul would later say when he says, we are saved by grace through faith We are justified. That that word justified just basically means God is placing his future judgment upon you now as justified. You You can break it down as just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. That God sees you guiltless, innocent, forgiven, washed. That the one opinion in the entire universe that matters above beyond any other opinion has rendered his verdict over you forgiven, justified, washed. So the question that you have to wrestle with, you have to think about, what are the opinions right now that you are a slave to that are constantly saying, you're not good enough. You haven't done enough. You need to do more, act more, look better, lose more weight, look more pretty, get your hair cut, shape up, act different, because until you do that, you will not be accepted. But in Christ, God says, yeah, you're, you are a sinner. You're more broken than you can ever even imagine. But simultaneously, you're more loved than you can ever even dream. To the degree you accept that, that will absolutely transform your life. And just like Paul, you'll be able to have this pure conscience. That's what Jesus offers. The second thing, uh, wrap this up very quickly, is we see the resurrection of hope. And here's what Paul later would allude to uh, around verse 6 when he's dialoguing with these guys. He says, brothers, I'm standing here before you because of my hope in the resurrection. The fact of the matter is, if you are a follower of Jesus, do you realize the greatest thing that you have to fear in this world, that apart from Jesus, let me put it this way, apart from Jesus, the greatest thing you and I have to fear in this world, um, aside from, let's say, torture, like, like I think most of us would say torture is worse than death, but death at some point is on a list pretty high up, that we all fear death, all humanity to some degree is like wired to be afraid of death. But what Paul's saying is that I, I'm not afraid of death. You can, you can torture me. You can take my life. You can throw me in prison. It's all a win-win for me. And why, why can Paul say that? Because his life was hijacked by another narrative. The narrative that Paul says, I now submit to, I now belong to, I now have been swept up into, is the narrative of not just suffering and death, but suffering, death, followed by resurrection. This is the narrative I live in. That resurrection is what has re-scripted, reshaped, reoriented my hope, my life. So now what I have is not just some sort of hopeful, wishful, platitudinal thinking that somehow life will get better. It's not optimism. We're not called to optimism. We are called to hope. Hope is not the same as optimism. Hope is rooted in an action of God. Optimism is just rooted in wishful thinking. Hope is anchored in the hope that God rose again from the dead, meaning he conquered the very greatest enemy that we all face, i.e. death. So we have this hope of life, beyond life, beyond death, called resurrection. And then finally, we see this sense of God's presence, even in the midst of suffering. And again, I go back to that passage in verse 11 where Paul is literally spent a very long day in the midst of almost being torn limb from limb, of being spread eagle, almost on the verge of being tortured, having to go through this like, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Long day. I think you can actually summarize that Paul had a very, very long day. Probably pretty stressful. Tough day, right? Paul, how was your day? It's really tough. It's not easy. Um, not good day today. But Paul would say, at the end of the day, Jesus came to me. And his, his presence reassured me. The hope of the gospel is not that we just hold on to a bunch of cliche statements. It's not that. There's a person. Christ. God with us. God is with us. God is with you right now. Sometimes the most trauma-ridden circumstances of our life, in those moments, that's why when, when people just give us cheap statements of, hey, it'll all get better, or 
you know, good things come to those who wait or whatever. I mean, those, those do not offer any hope. In fact, in some ways, they're actually full of ins- they, they can be felt like an insult. But when someone can just come and sit next to you while you grieve, while you weep, while you suffer, that brings a sense of transformation. And this is what happens with Paul. Paul says, Jesus came to me in the night and he speaks to me. And then what he recognizes is that Paul sees that life is going to be carried on with Christ with me. His promises will be fulfilled in me. There's two things I think that are always happening within the context of suffering. Two things. Number one is I think we oftentimes forget, but the fact in that matter, number one, is that God is always at work even when we don't understand. See, a lot of times in suffering, one of the first questions we ask is, why? See, what, what you're asking for is, is understanding. You're trying to gain some level, some degree of, 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 of understanding. And with God, he rarely actually gives understanding. He will give his presence, though. He will give his presence. And in the gospel, what we learn is that God's presence is actually greater than understanding. And so that's what we see. Number one is that we see is that God is always at work even when we don't understand. See, because look, if you were to ask Paul, Paul, what would you want more than anything today? Paul probably would have said, I don't want to be in prison. I want to be in Asia Minor. I want to be in some sort of region where there's a bunch of hungry people that I can preach Jesus to. Paul, I highly doubt Paul would say, you know what, I'm actually pretty happy just being in prison. Like, this is cool. I'm pretty sure, certain that's not what Paul would want. But what Paul no doubt could not see is that somehow God was actually using that prison experience as a means of not only transforming him, of shaping him, but also in some ways protecting him. That there were things that Paul was not even able to be aware of that were at work beyond this. Again, we're reading the story in hindsight after it was put together, after it was scripted and narrated and storyboarded. We're reading the story kind of as a postscript to Paul's life. But nonetheless, we see that God is at work in ways that we oftentimes don't even understand. Secondly, within the context of suffering, we also recognize that the apparent absence of God does not nullify the actual presence of God. Let me restate that again. The apparent absence of God does not nullify the actual presence of God. Here's what I mean by this. That when we are going through suffering, it's one of those moments where we oftentimes question, is God even around? So we oftentimes feel like, I don't think God's here. I don't sense God's presence. I don't hear God's voice. And we feel as if God's really far away from us. But just because you feel that doesn't nullify the fact that he is actually near. This is the story of Scripture all over and over and over again. God is near. So John Newton, the guy who wrote... Amazing Grace, um, was a guy that was actually familiar with suffering. He had written this statement. I'll just finish with this. He says, all shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Let me read this again. All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. So here's the thing. You and I, we oftentimes ask God these questions like, God, I need you to get me out of this circumstance, or I need you to get me this spouse, or I need you to get me this job, or I need you to arrange these circumstances so that my life somehow will be better or more complete with the context of these things, I think. And what, what John Newton is basically saying is that, look, at the end of the day, there are going to be occasions where God says yes to us, and he gives us certain things, and sometimes those certain things might not be things that would necessarily fit into our paradigm, but what we think is good. But what John Newton is saying is that they are needful. God's using them somehow, some way in our lives to shape us into people that God knows that we're going to become, according to him. And then there's certain things that God withholds. And yet in our hearts, we're like, no, we need this, God. And God's like, no, you, you really don't need this. Because you don't know where this thing, whatever it is, is that going to take you if you are given it. And what God is always saying at the very end is, just trust me. Just trust me. I'll transform you. I'll be with you in the midst of this. So this is what we learn. Those three things, I think, in the midst of the life of Paul's 
story that we see unfolded for us. And I want to finish by um, us all responding, singing. I want to read a uh, final quote from the book of Narnia, uh, The Last Battle. That's cool. You guys cool with that? Like, it's always a good space for uh, C.S. Lewis. So why don't we all stand and uh, worship people come on up and just want listen to this. It's uh, I've seen The Last Battle. Um, if you saw the movie, right, maybe you can remember that little image, but I'll, just, I'll read it. I just want you to think about it, and then we will respond by singing, praying, partaking of communion. If you're here for anything that's going on, you need prayer for whatever, we'd love to just offer space and time to minister and to pray for you. Listen to what Sis Lewis writes. It says, and he, as Aslan, as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot even write about them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was really only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures throughout Narnia had only been really the cover, the title page. For at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is the hope the gospel offers. This life is momentary. It will not last forever. It has an expiration date. You're welcome. But the, the hope that we have in Jesus is that life does not end after death. We have this hope of resurrection, which Jesus says, trust me, in the midst of this world's suffering, I will use all these things for good because this is what I've done for you. Christ comes into this world. He suffers. He experiences the sense of abandonment, and yet God makes good upon the life of Jesus. And that's what the gospel says, that all who are in Christ are brought into this narrative where everything that happened to Jesus will also happen to us. Life, suffering, Death, but resurrection. That's the hope that we have. So I encourage you, no matter who you are, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're still kind of thinking about this reality we call Christianity or following Jesus or whatever the case is, my hope would be that you would open your heart and invite Christ to wash you, to cleanse you, to give you a clear conscience. If you're a follower of Jesus, my hope would be that you would have new hope in the midst of whatever circumstances you're going through. So let me pray. Let's respond, let's partake of communion, let's sing. Jesus, thank you for your nearness here right now. We submit our hearts, our ways, our thoughts to you. So meet us in this place now.